Welcome back to What You'll Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Peter Singer just at Melbourne University on a beautiful sunny day. Peter Singer is regarded as the most famous and most influential living philosopher. Yeah. I don't know how many philosophers there are, but mate, that's a, that's a massive title and he's a massive dude. You know, he started four and a half decades ago with a book called Animal Liberation. And since then, he's done books like we did The Life You Can Save, but also The Most Good You Can Do. Uh, you know, how are we to live, practical ethics, rethinking life and death, yep. philosophy, absolute God. Yeah, so in the interview, we jump into a bit about his utilitarian philosophy, a bit about animals and, you know, eating meat and all that kind of stuff, a bit about ending world poverty, and a bit about how to tackle some of the really hard questions when, you you know, you've you got competing kind of values. So, yeah, it's really good stuff, and I've loved listening to him. I thought it was great. I just thought all philosophy students were wankers, um, but... Not when they're with Singer. Man, I wish I did philosophy now. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, interesting stuff, I reckon, just a different way to look at the world that He's I've never thought man. of before. Sing the song of Singer. Peter Singer, thank you very much for uh, for having us today good happy to talk to you and giving us a taste as we were just saying we uh know very little but we're very curious uh so we're, sort of, we're very keen i guess just to start off what what is philosophy what is utilitarianism just a real basic uh, you know just to frame the conversation i guess yes um so philosophy really is trying to understand the world um and i suppose when it began, and the Western tradition ban- began in ancient Greece, there wasn't really a sharp distinction between science and philosophy. In fact, uh, even here at the University of Melbourne, you can actually go to the old physics building and it has uh, natural philosophy written on it. Um, so, but, but gradually, those areas that proved to be uh, accessible by experimental sort of techniques or going out and gathering specimens of something or other ceased to be seen as part of philosophy. So philosophy, you could say, was was what is left, the the kind of things that we want to understand, but uh, we have no experimental method or um, fact-gathering method to try to understand them. So it's really a matter of thinking, reasoning, arguing to try to get as far as we can with those very tend to be pretty difficult sort of questions. Yeah, absolutely love it. So we, we read your book and we did a review of The Life You Can Save and for really general, kind of normal kind of person, I felt like a, a little bit of a, a punch in the face but in a really good way. And I think I, and along with a lot of people, are probably going about their whole lives. You know, you do university, you earn some money, you retire and then probably give your inheritance down to, to your kids. But it turns out this might not get a pass in terms of, you know, helping the, the world be a better place. So can you tell us a little bit about the average person and are we actually making the world better from, I guess, the average Joe point of view? Well, I mean, the average person may be making the world a little bit better. That is, um, they may be doing good things for their family and neighbours. Of course, they're probably doing bad things as well. One bad thing that we're all doing is we're emitting greenhouse gases and that's heating up the planet and that's going to be very bad for lots of people in future. So how exactly you balance the good things and the bad things would be a bit difficult to say. But but more important, I think, is that even if you decide the average Joe is making the world a little bit better, that's a good thing, but is the average Joe doing as much as he or she um, could do to make the world better? Clearly not. 
Uh, and I would argue that we ought to be doing more. Um, in fact, I've, I've written as, as well as The Life You Can Save. I wrote a book called The Most Good You Can Do, in which I think we ought to at least think more about how we can do the most good. Not necessarily that I'm expecting anybody to really be a saint, to work full-time to do the most good that they can do. But if you're doing some things that are good, maybe for the same amount of effort you can do things that are actually going to produce ten times as much good or a mm. hundred or a thousand times as much good. That's not unrealistic when you look at things people do. So why not think about that and yep. do that ten or a hundred or a thousand times as much good? I think it's, that's good. It's just the opening the eyes because, as you say, we, we probably think we're doing okay or maybe we don't even think about it. But with the same or a little bit extra effort, we could, you know, 100x, 1,000x those positive impacts. And, you know, the life can save a lot of small things that uh, we probably didn't even realise, didn't even think about that can really have a, a positive impact. So what are, what are some of the things that you, you know, a long, very, um, you know, well-regarded career talking about things like, poverty, talking about aid, talking about animals. Uh, you've covered a, a wide variety of things. And I, I just, I guess, I'm thinking about the, the, the type of thinking of this utilitarianism of, you know, w- I guess as a, as a basic level, uh, what, what is it, how are people thinking about, how should we be thinking about it um, in terms of this utilitarian philosophy? Yeah, so utilitarianism is a, a view, uh, an ethical position that says we ought to, judge actions as right or wrong in accordance with whether they're producing the best consequences that they can. So the right action, the right thing to do is the thing that will produce the best consequences, all things considered, not just in the short term but in the long term. And um, in a sense, the wrong action is everything else, um, which makes it a pretty demanding philosophy. But, of course, utilitarians aren't going to really denounce people for just doing the second best because that's itself not going to be productive, right? That would mm-hmm. be counterproductive and that's not what they're about. So it's it's more a matter of, of trying to encourage people to think about doing better in terms of doing things that have better consequences than they're presently doing. And then maybe when they've done that, maybe they can do even better uh, after that as well. In terms of, how, I guess, how um, hardline is it and how much grey area is there in terms of thinking... You know, you know, weighing up, say, the value of a human's life, the value of an animal's life, the value of giving to one person versus keeping it for yourself. You know, how, how much is black and white and how much is there a grey area? Well, uh, some of those things are pretty grey, but some of them are fairly clear, I think. Uh, so, um, for instance, I think one thing that's clear is that you can... If you're going to donate to a charity, you can probably do more good with that donation if it's a charity working in some of the poorest countries in the world Mm. rather than if it's a charity working in a fairly affluent country like our own. And it's it's not difficult to see why that's so. Um, If you've, let's say you've got $1,000 that you think you could spare, um, that's more than the average annual income, or sorry, not more than the the annual income of of people in extreme poverty in, in many developing countries. So, you know, you can do you can double, in fact a thousand dollars would treble some people's incomes. And you can think what a difference that can make. It can give them opportunities to do things that they could never have saved up the amount of money to do. Maybe to start some little business or you know, or send their kids to school, a whole lot of things. Whereas in Australia a thousand dollars isn't really going to go very far. You know, you see a needy person, a homeless person on the street, mm. um, 
what are you going to do? You know, give them a thousand dollars. Well, is that going to be life changing to them? Probably not. Probably not. Um, and uh, you know, what else can you do? So, so that's the kind of that's something that I think is pretty clear. Whereas a lot of a lot of other questions are more grey because they depend on a really detailed knowledge of the consequences of what you're doing. Can I? Um, I've got an example which I think might be grey, but for you, hopefully, it's not grey, so I can get a bit of clarity. But I work in a the timber industry so for timber buildings and the alternative to timber would be materials like concrete or steel which do take a lot of emissions and you know really bad for global warming but if you look at timber it stores carbon over the building's life cycle and and is for from a sustainability point of view the best material but in the timber industry obviously you're going to kill a lot of animals in the in when you with plantations and all this kind of stuff so on one side you got the animals getting killed and the other side you've got um protecting humans humans against global warming or all of us against global warming including animals yeah so you know they are complicated questions and it's, it's difficult to give a clear answer um it depends a little where those plantations are going clearly if you're able to plant plantations in land that has already been cleared and is low value for other uses then that's just a plus because um you're soaking up the carbon um, i guess it's true that when you fell a plantation there will be animals that have moved into it mm. but not nearly as many as would be in an old, old growth forest and and then you know on the other hand if you were clearing an old growth forest using the timber and then establishing a plantation um, then i think there would be a lot more problems with the animals in that area plus other conservation values that might be there in the old growth forest mm. So, you know, basically what that example shows is that utilitarians need to get pretty specific. They, they, yeah, they need to talk about particular cases rather than about general areas like industries as a whole. I suppose is general sort of the first step and then it's you know, thinking about as a general and then applying to specifics or is it the other way around? I think you, you need to go specific very quickly because often the general questions are just uh-huh. too general to give any meaningful answer to. Um, and maybe that's a criticism. When I was in uh, at uni, I thought you know philosophy was a bit wanky because all the art students you know had these general ideas, but weren't applying it to the the real world. But the more I'm reading these specific applied ideas, I'm more and more intrigued. Yeah, but I mean, philosophy will at least raise questions that you might not have thought Definitely. about at all. I mean, yeah. um, you know, as you were saying, many people do just um, go through life thinking, you know following some career that somehow, you know, maybe their parents or some uh, counsellor at school suggested they'd be good for, earning some money in it, um, looking after themselves and their family and, uh, and then retiring. So um, philosophy ought to open you up to thinking about ethical choices in, in your career, um, not just the ones that you sort of fall into in an easy pattern. They also ought to open you up to thinking about things like, like what should I eat? Um, so even just, just raising the question of, uh, is the way we treat animals okay is something that a lot of people won't do but if they do take a philosophy course um, nowadays at least an ethics course anyway they're likely to have that question raised yeah nice I love it so we were talking a little bit obviously we, we did the book um, The Life You Can Save talking about aid talking about poverty and you know four and a half decades ago I guess you kicked off with animal liberation and you know it's, we've thought a lot about racism we've thought a lot about sexism uh, but there's that other level that I, I think most people don't think about, which is speciesism. 
mm-hmm. and talking about, you know, are animals as important as humans? You know, should we be valuing them the same? I've got a quote maybe to, which ties on to this question as well. It's And I got this off Google, so I'm not sure if this is... <laughs> I know if this is let's, just a let's hear it. Uh-huh. But it says, all the arguments to prove man's superiority... superiority not shatter this hard fact in suffering the animals are our equals yes that is uh, something i wrote um and and i I stand by that but but you you know a lot of people say well singer thinks that all animals and humans are equal or the same or whatever right and and that's not what the quote says the the quote refers specifically to suffering Hmm. so what i'm saying here is um if two beings suffer equally suffer just as much the fact that one of them is a member of the species Homo sapien and another of them is of a different non-human species mm. isn't the reason for saying that the suffering of the member of the species Homo sapien matters more. Mm. Um, we need to look at, at the suffering and we shouldn't, just as, as you were saying, it's just as we, if somebody said, well, you need to ask, uh, is that a white person or a black person? And we would think that that would be the wrong question yeah. to ask or a man or a woman. Um, so similarly... I think it's the wrong question to ask to say, is it a human? Uh, the question might be um, something like, uh, how much is the creature suffering? Um, for what reason? What purpose? Can we stop it? What will be the further consequences of stopping it? But, but just the pain itself, you know, I mm. think pain is pain and equally bad, whichever the being mm. that is experiencing pain. Do you measure that from the, so is the nervous system just as developed as the humans? Is that, is that why it's, it's the suffering is equal? Well, um, obviously not all animals have nervous systems that are similar to humans. Some of them may have much more rudimentary nervous systems and we may say, you know, in the case of of insects, we may be unsure whether they're really capable of suffering at all. But if we are talking about vertebrates, then I think the nervous system is sufficiently similar to say that they can suffer. Um, But still, they they will suffer in different ways. You know, I'm, I'm talking about where suffering is equal. So you might say for... Many things that happen, humans might suffer more because, let's say, they have other people. You know, somebody, somebody is killed and uh, their family will remember that and be uh, grieving about that for a long time to come. Uh, other animals may not be social animals at all and they may not um, have contact between uh, offspring and the parents anymore. You know, again, mm. depending on the nature of the species. Some, some obviously will for a long time. So you have to take all that into account. Um, to say whether or not the suffering is equal. My, my quote doesn't say that the suffering of every animal is equal. It just says we are equal in the fact that we do suffer and the fact that that suffering matters. Mm. I guess one of, the, one of the animals in the world which is used a lot, that goes through a lot of suffering, would be like a, a cow which ends up in our burgers and all of that. But um, feel free to knock me out of the park if I'm completely wrong in, in this which i probably am but sometimes i think personally like in my life my pleasure is measured by my pain in some kind of way so my variety of experience would somewhat determine the amount of suffering i have but if an animal and this might sound really bad i don't want it to that uh if an animal lives in a in a pen and then doesn't know any any different and gets killed um humanely is that still the same suffering or well, it may not be the same as, as what you're suffering, but I don't think the fact that the animal has lived in a pen all its life means that it isn't suffering from that confinement. Um, animals have uh, instincts or, you could say, uh, innate behaviour patterns which they will try to perform 
even if they've never lived in opportunities when mm-hmm. they can. So, in fact, you, you can take uh, the hens uh, who lay our eggs um, who've never been outdoors, um, never been on grass or anything like that, um, and if you take them at the point when they've finished laying, because laying hens typically get killed when they're about uh, 18 months old, something like that, because the rate of lay drops off. So you, you rescue one of these hens before it gets slaughtered and you put it out in a field. And within minutes, it's, it's running around the field, it's chasing insects, um, it's looking perhaps for a, a dusty patch to dust bathe in because hens like to fluff up dust under their wings. None of these things that it could do in the cages. Mm. But that was all pre-programmed behaviour. And people who study the behaviour of hens say that they're stressed by the inability to do a lot of these things. Mm. It certainly is uh, almost saddening. Well, it is saddening to think that you know this is how they've been treated because i guess it is a high yield for humans to eat and it's a cheaper more efficient way to lay eggs and to to grow meat has there been progress yeah there's been some progress um i think we've got a long way to go and australia is not particularly advanced in this progress but uh across the european union for example the kinds of cages that we still keep hens in here are illegal and have been illegal for about a decade now. Um, In the state of California as well, where they have uh, the possibility of of citizens voting on measures that get put on the ballot if you have enough signatures. So they had a measure on, again, on things like standard cages for hens, the individual stalls for the breeding sows, the mothers, mother pigs, and for veal calves, um, and they voted against all of those things. So they've gone from California, uh, whereas we still have, the, they're, perhaps they're being phased out, but we still have the individual sow stalls, we still have the cages for hens, although free-range eggs and barn-laid eggs, non, non-caged eggs are more common now than they were a few years ago. But, uh, you know, yes, you can still keep hens and pigs today legally in Australia in conditions that you couldn't anywhere in the European Union um, or in the state of California. Wow, that's interesting that Australia is still trading it, behind. It, it is, and it is, uh, it is distressing. I mean, you could say it's due to the influence of the agricultural rural lobby and the National Party, something like that. It's, it's not exactly clear to me why that's so. Why you know, Even countries in Europe that we don't think of as being particularly advanced in their animal welfare concerns, whether it's... Uh, Romania or Greece or uh, Lithuania or Poland, um, they all comply with the EU laws that are tighter than we have here. I had, um, I had a mate who worked at a free-range chicken kind of farm and he was he, he loved meat beforehand, but even in a, what was labelled free-range, he, he became vegetarian just by looking at that. Yeah. That's what we think's good. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, th- I, think if, yeah, I think if more people really could see how the animals are treated... They would, and that's why some of these undercover videos that you can find online are a very effective tool for getting people to show how animals are treated, um, and many of them do then stop. It was just recently that uh, in Australia the sheep love export sheep to the Middle East, I believe. I don't watch the news too much, but this was one, mm. one thing I saw that some uh, video emerged, I'm guessing, from an, an insider of you know the sheep and the treatment they had going yeah. you know, on a ship from Australia overseas was not not too good at all. That's right. No, it was horrendous, really, I think. Um, And that was taken by an employee. Uh, It wasn't taken by sort of of a a planted animal rights activist or anything. Uh, An employee who was so distressed by what he was seeing um, for these 
thousands, tens of thousands of sheep packed under this uh, ship. For some reason, uh, I thought it got um, phased out. I remember hearing a lot about it a few years ago and then yeah. nothing about it now it seems to have come Well, what, what tends to happen is that um, there is some kind of expose or there's something that goes wrong. There was a case, maybe what you're thinking of some years ago, where something went wrong with a ship, maybe there was a fire on it, and there have also been other cases where, for some reason, they couldn't get into a port in the Middle East because the ship, sheep had a disease, and then thousands of sheep start dying and the corpses are thrown overboard and so on. So that happened a few years ago, and there was an outcry, and the government said, well, we're going to reform this, we're going to change it so it won't happen again, and they did that, and sort of the outcry went away, but what we've seen now is that you know, things that just just slip again. If if it doesn't mm. have this focus of attention, mm. um, it it slips away, and that's why I I just read that a, one of the actually a Liberal Party member of federal parliament is introducing a private members bill to ban the live export trade, uh, and I really think that is the only long term solution to this. Yep. One of the things that comes up in a few of the books we've read, because we obviously review books in our podcast, is that meat is healthy and it is along with our ancestral diet. And all these things. So I'd like to get um, a view of you on on the nutrition side of things, because you look bloody healthy. And how, I won't ask how old you are. Is that is that rude? <laughs> that's okay. I'm 71. So yeah. For 71, you're looking incredible. Yeah. But that's you know. And sometimes I see vegans around the around the street, and they're not looking so healthy. So wh- what are your? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, I'm. I'm I think you, you, you can be healthy on a diet that includes some meat and you can be healthy on a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet, uh, but it, it does depend what you eat. You know, you could be a, uh, a vegan and eat uh, nothing but potato chips fried in, in vegetable oil, right, and it wouldn't be a particularly healthy diet. Um, you could eat a lot of sugar as well. Um, so uh, I think, uh, and I do think, you know, that it wouldn't really harm me to eat small amounts of meat. I think the amount of meat that typical uh, Australians and and Westerners generally eat is pretty harmful. Um, And there is good evidence, uh, particularly about about red meat um, being related to forms of cancer of the digestive system and uh, and some to heart disease as well. So, um, but to me, you know, that's not why uh, I I don't eat meat. um, It is more an ethical question. And to me, the essential question is, uh, can you be healthy uh, on a vegetarian or vegan diet? And the answer to that, I think, is, is definitely yes, mm. as long as you inform yourself about uh, you know, a, a range of different things that you eat, get a balanced uh, diet with um, a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of fibre and carbs mm. and, and so on. Yeah. Nice. I think I know the answer to this. I'm going to try and lob it up. But when it comes to you know, aid, trying to help reduce poverty trying to help improve you know the life of animals uh whose responsibility is it is it the the news people for promoting it is it for philosophers for coming up with ideas or is it everybody oh uh, it's everybody yeah. i think yeah so i think you know philosophers have a role but um but uh, the news have a role the problem with the news is that a lot of the news is commercial, and yeah. uh, so they have to put out what the public wants to read. And mm. um, if they write things that uh, feature a lot of animal suffering, they're worried about turning people off or, or about global poverty, for example. Um, mm. So they're worried that people may not read those columns. So to that extent, we're all responsible. Because if, if we say, oh, there's another story I don't want to read, you know, especially nowadays when it's a lot of it is online, uh, the 
newspapers can easily see how many clicks an article gets and, mm. and they're going to say to someone, look, you've got to stop writing about uh, people in extreme poverty in Africa because people are just not reading that. Mm. Um, so people should read it, you know. Mm. It's, it's actually an important thing to inform yourself about the state of the world and people who are less fortunate than we are. Yeah, of course. So I guess they're following some kind of capitalistic goals that a lot of businesses around the world are following. So is, is capitalism partly to blame or do you think what do you think is the best system or the best economic model for, to meet some of the world's needs? Um, so capitalism has a, a, a lot of sins on its head, but I certainly wouldn't blame it for everything. And, um, you know, I think really there are more basic things than that. Uh, so there are essentially the the focus that we have on our own interests and those of people close to us and uh in other economic systems you will still get people doing that that yeah. that's you know why when you abolished capitalism and set up uh, communist systems in the soviet union or in uh, china um things did not get better in fact they they got significantly worse mm-hmm. um because the people in charge um, were still acting in a selfish way, and in fact, they had more power now to um, dictate to others what was going to happen. Mm. So, how does someone like yourself, so that, say the average, um, the average person might be selfish or or whatever. So, how does someone go about actually make that switch, become selfless, and all of a sudden start looking at effective altruism and actually trying to make a net positive impact in the world what's the switch there and i don't know if this is a question on in the philosophy area as well but oh it's an area of philosophy that overlaps with psychology i guess um and let me just say one thing it's not a question of becoming selfless um as i said before um there are very few saints who are completely selfless yeah. and uh i don't think there's much point in trying to get people to be like that i think the point is to get people to be open to thinking more about others um you know they're still going to think more about themselves than about strangers and more about their own children than about the children of strangers. Um, but uh, there is plenty of room, especially people who live in affluent societies and don't have to worry about where their next meal is going to come from. There's plenty of room to do good things for others. Mm. Uh, and, and this is where the psychology research comes in. There's lots of evidence that actually you will find that fulfilling, that you'll enjoy your life more if you're open to helping others, um, that it gives you purposes which go beyond yourself and purposes which actually don't become sort of, you know, there's a thing called the hedonic treadmill that if you try and say, oh, well, I want to have more consumer goods, I want to drive a better car, I want to uh, you know, have a bigger house, um, that these things make you happy for a short while, but mm. after a while that disappears. Whereas um, the rewards of, of helping others and knowing that you're living in accordance with your values seem to be lasting ones. Yeah, that hedonic treadmill is yeah, it's a great one to, to jump off, I think. And um, the Dalai Lama, I remember hearing him say once, like, if you want to be happy, practice compassion, and if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. Yes. Which is uh, definitely on the long run. That's a very, yes, and that, and that is a, a, a Buddhist idea, um, that practicing compassion actually and really feeling the needs of others um, is something that is rewarding for yourself um but it's also an idea that's been around in western thought too yeah so say if someone's listening now and they're, they're young and they want to go out there and change the the world or do good in the world what specific action or advice do you think they could take into mm. to to maximize the impacts they can they can have well, if somebody's young and, and not yet set on a particular career path, then think about what you are going to do with your life. And in thinking about that, 
take account of the impact that it will have on the world and, and see if you can find a career that is more likely than not to have a positive impact. Um, you can go online to an organization called 80,000hours.org. Um, that offers advice on ethical career choice, uh, and that's useful. But also, um, as we were saying earlier, think about the way you live right now. Think about what you're going to eat. Think about what you're going to do with whatever spare cash you have, because pretty much you know all of us spend something on uh, spend a few dollars on a on a coffee or on a, a glass Bottle of wine, of or, yeah, whatever whatever it might be. Um, and some of us, of course, spend a lot more on other things that we don't need. And and think about whether you can put aside some of that. Uh, for effective charities. Mm. Uh, just quickly, Adam Ashton was going to bring in... <laughs> we normally bring three bottles of water in for the guests. <laughs> but just, uh, that was a big part of the life you saved, <laughs> yeah. so he so decided not to. <laughs> right, um, and I have one here, but actually I was out with, uh, for lunch with someone else who said, did, did I want a drink and brought me this can? But um, uh, it's not normally there. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, I think uh, it's something I'd never honestly really thought about my... Uh, my grandparents are, are farmers, uh, and I think their animals have it pretty good compared to some of the other things because, like, having not thought about it, but having my eyes opened by books like The Life You Can Save or by watching, you know, documentaries like Cowspiracy or, you know, speaking to a, a philosophical vegan friend who's not trying to, you know, ram it down your throat because he thinks he's, um, you know, righteous and superior, but actually trying to just present the arguments. I think an important first step is having our eyes open to, you know, these ideas. What, what do you think is a, is a good way for someone to, you know, engage with this stuff, just have their eyes open a little bit? Well, you know, there's so much information online now, I think, that whatever it is. So, as I say, if, um, if you're thinking about what you're going to eat, then go to a website like Animals Australia. You'll find lots of descriptions and videos of how your food is produced and uh, think about whether you want to be part of that. Um, if you're interested in effective charities, uh, I founded an organisation named after my book called The Life You Can Save, and you go to thelifeyoucansave.org and you find recommendations for effective charities, and uh, that's about to set up an Australian branch as well. Uh, so um, there's plenty of information out there. And it's, the other thing I'd say is it's good to get together with other people with similar ideas who are thinking about living ethically because... It's much harder when you're on your own and all your other friends say, oh, you know, why bother and so on. But if you're with a group of people who are trying to get their acts in line with decent values, then it's, it's much more rewarding, much easier to do it. Yeah, definitely. I think it is pretty important. As I said, it's something I'd never really thought much about, but something I'd definitely try and be more mm-hmm. conscious of. Yeah. from here on out yeah as we are as we get toward the end and now uh what what books have been really influential on your life well um you know one of the books that really was very influential in um leading me to be uh become a, a vegetarian uh, uh, back in the 1970s um because of course there was no world wide web or anything and you couldn't get information otherwise uh was a book called animal machines um by uh ruth harrison which uh, I doubt that you can get now. It was not a big-selling book then, mm. uh, but it was the it was actually the only book about what was happening f- to animals in factory farms because factory farms were already in existence, and it described them uh, and it described them not just by you know uh, in emotional terms, uh, picturing how the animals were, but but are actually quoting from farming journals about how you could get make more money out of your hens if you put more of them in a cage and so on. Um, mm. So. Uh, that really made a, 
uh, a big difference to me. Um, philosophically, I suppose, you know, I was a, an undergraduate here at the University of Melbourne where we're talking now, uh, and I read a number of books on ethics. Um, my uh, teacher uh, recommended a, a book by a 19th century utilitarian philosopher called Henry Sidgwick, a book called The Methods of Ethics, which I actually still think is probably the best, one of the best books on ethics ever written, although it isn't for the general reader because it's fairly dense. It's about 500 pages long. It's kind of this long Victorian kind of sentence structure. So I'm not recommending everyone pick it up. Uh, in fact, if I were to recommend you read a book on utilitarianism, I've got one in the Oxford University Press very short introduction series, um, like a 100-page book. Uh, yeah, so um, uh, that would be better. But, but that was still a very influential book on me. It got me thinking about utilitarianism as an ethical position. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you for uh, you know, speaking to a few blokes who haven't studied any philosophy, but um, not just to us, but to everyone making these ideas uh, accessible you mm. know, to the... Um, to the to the layman without having to have this intense academic you know study and ideas and you know presenting these ideas about important things poverty treatment of animals uh and just more life more broadly and doing good on a pretty basic level which is good sure well i'm happy to have the chance to speak to your listeners i don't want yeah. to spend all my time just speaking to other academics yeah. <laughs> what's you. what's what's the next projects for you what, what's the next things you're working on um, so I'm planning with a, a co-author um, uh, thinking about population, about uh, you know, a lot of people say the world is overpopulated. Uh, is the world really overpopulated? Uh, can we support the 9 or 10 billion people we're going to have by mid-century? And, and if not, what are ethical steps that we can take to try to prevent that's, that happening? That's, that's very, a big, yeah, that's big very big interesting question. to us. It's, yeah. Our eyes are just lit up. And just a really, really quick fire question, and this guy's going to um, kill us if we don't ask you. So you can just say no and leave it at that, but what are your thoughts on Lord of the Rings? And that's a question by Nick Ant. Um, I think the book is terrific. I, I didn't like the movies. Um, the, the movies, you know... I've never, never read it, never seen it. It happens so often with movies. They... they just go in for the action stuff, the battles, the monsters, all of this sort of stuff. And Lord of the Rings, if you read the book, is not about that. It's about immersing yourself in a different kind of culture, you know, reminiscent of medieval times, but a, but a different set of beliefs. And you don't get that out of the movie at all. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks That's so good. much. Um, you thank you so much. It was awesome. Thank you, Peter. We have been working on a document for a while, and it's our top 50 books of all time. And it's ready. That's it. You can grab our top 50 books where we've ranked our favorite and most impactful books that we've read so far. And, you know, a bit of a spiel on each one. And you can grab a copy for yourself whilst you're in there. And it's a phenomenal document, I reckon. Most of the books we haven't um, reviewed yet. So I reckon your reading list will be popped up by a few after reading that one. Exactly, man. We won't give away uh, too many spoilers, but there's some absolute juggernauts in that top 50, as you would expect. Head to, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and you can download that uh, that report of the top 50 books of all time. 2018 free. version. All free. 